Thanks very much. Um, thanks. It's great to see so many people here. Thanks very much for coming and supporting me. Um, David chose the first bit of the title, and I chose the second bit of the title. And hopefully by the um, so you can sort of see the difference between us. So hopefully by the end of uh, my presentation, the second part of the title will become uh, clearer, and hopefully maybe the first part of the title will become clearer to me as well. So. I think um, one of the things, obviously, when we're talking this, this term, social sustainability, I'm not saying that I particularly like it myself that much, um, but it's, and, and there really isn't much of a, a proper definition for it. But So I thought I'd sort of, first of all, take you through a little bit about what I understand from the literatures, the limited literatures in this subject, what I understand about social sustainability. And um, I think that there, I mean, it would be fair to say that there isn't a single agreed definition. I think we always preface our talks with these things. There's not, there's not a definition of this. There's no consensus. Um, but I think that Church and McCarry um, have sort of, they, they did a, an overview of this in 2006, um, a, an overview of the literature, and sort of picked out these five key elements of social sustainability, which is around tackling social exclusion or non-participation in key activities um, and protecting vulnerable populations, minimising social inequalities, improving public health, building social capital and community cohesion and bringing the long-lasting benefit to all relevant stakeholders. Um, very much, I would say, the social and very little, I would say, about environmental. And I think I want to sort of push that definition further by trying to think of social sustainability as something that has an interface between economic, environmental and social pillars of um, sustainable development and, and also possibly a further institutional pillar as well. And we'll look at that through the talk. So, OK, the second part... Why Cinderella? Well, I suppose all of you are familiar with the poor old Cinderella story. You know, there she is sitting down in the basement, cleaning the hearth, hidden, dirty, out of sight. Arguably very similar to the social pillar of sustainable development, really something that has not necessarily come to the fore to the same extent as her two ugly sisters. Eco-efficiency, um, economic efficiency and environmental limits, both of which sort of tend to say, um, well, you know, that's, they're, they're, they're both of them quite ugly, actually, elements, I would say, of sustainable development. We're all trying to get, you know, as much as we can for our buck and um, hopefully not doing too many things that are nasty consumption and therefore, you know, mind your business, mind your P's and Q's. So sort of both are a bit of a no-no. And I'm maybe arguing that perhaps um, the hidden and forgotten beauty in the room might be the saving grace at the end of the day, and we'll see that when we come to the end of the presentation. So um, I would say that if you think about the social sustainability as in this sort of interface between, oh, sorry, between the, um, the, the environmental and the social, so sort of this interface here, that what you want is economic growth, but you want it, so this model, this Russian doll model that um, was by O'Riordan, coined by O'Riordan some time ago in the University of Norwich, he, he stand here, he, he sort of said, well, okay, we want economic development, but we want it to benefit society. We don't just want economic development for economic development's sake, which so often is actually the case. Um, we want it to, to sort of have social benefits. And also, we want it to be within environmental limits. And so this is a sort of new way of conceptualising sustainable development. Um, 
But I would say that also, if you think about social sustainability, you come up with this new sort of institutional parameter. So I prefer this sort of this triangle look here, this pyramid, if you like. Three-dimensional, I'm not very good at drawing three-dimensionally, but this is supposed to be three-dimensional. So yes, okay, you still have the social imperative, environmental imperative, you still have the economic imperative and the social imperative, but you start to have some sort of an idea that what you're doing is thinking about these things in terms of other, other parameters, thinking about benefits and burdens, thinking about access and care, thinking about issues of democracy in, in terms of this and justice in terms of this movement towards socially sustainable uh, cities, environments. Okay, so we'll come back to this in a minute. So inherently, therefore, socially sustainable development recognises this policy interface between environment, social, economic. I'm particularly thinking about environmental policy, not only talking about environmental quality, but also talking about social conditions. And starts thinking about the interactions between social conditions and environmental quality. So thinking about the fact that when you do something to improve the environment, you're also wondering about what impact that will have on, on societies, on populations, on communities. And that, that also equally, your social policy has environmental implications. So if you decide that you're going to have a, a social policy that um, improves the consumption of low-income groups, you might want to be thinking about how you improve that consumption so that it's still got an environmental or uh, eco-footprint consideration within it. Because there are these in, inherent interactions between the environmental and the social which are often go unrecognised. And people that talk about social sustainability will talk about the fact that if what you do is try to improve, reach, achieve carbon targets or carbon reduction targets without thinking about the social, you actually undermine the uh, possibility to achieve your goals. So I think that that's one of the things that I would think. Now, I'm, I'm, I always try to blow my own trumpet at some point in a talk, so you can buy this book, which I co-authored with my colleagues at University of Westminster. Um, but there is really a reason why I put it up there, which is that I would say socially sustainable um, mobility, which we're going to move on to, and socially sustainable development also is much more contextually specific, and I think this is why geographers have picked up, picked up on it, that it does think a lot more about the context. It isn't just about policies in a vacuum, but policies delivered within particular micro, meso, macro, and global contexts, and hopefully with some connectivity between them. So that when we start thinking about uh, social, socially sustainable development, we think about the policies, how policies will affect communities and neighbourhoods, how there are the con connectivity between those places um, and, and what the conditions of those places look like. Thinking about macro-regional development in the context of this and thinking about climate change and climate change impacts and knock-ons right the way through back to the micro. So what does socially sustainable transport look like? And uh, for, you, for those of you who've had to, to listen to my voice all day today, we've already touched on this subject a little bit, but I think not really answered it. And so I've just put up this as a working definition. It's far from perfect, but I would say, well, OK, maybe we're not talking about mobility, but we're talking rather about accessibility. So we're not thinking so much about how much people can move, but what they can get through that movement. And that maybe we're thinking about something to do with reasonable quality of life and maintenance of a reasonable quality of life or life opportunities. And that we're also thinking about that happening within 
the Earth's capacity. And later on, we'll talk about whether you can achieve that. So five key policy objectives would be somewhere, something looked like something like a fair allocation of transport resources or transport spending, an equal opportunity to be able to be mobile, even if you don't necessarily take that opportunity up. And when you take that opportunity up, the mobility is specifically to be able to enhance your life chances or your opportunities that you would seek actively to reverse the adverse effects of the transport system, such as pollution, such as climate change, but also things like accidents and also lockouts or social exclusion. You think about participation in decision-making, and this came up something, but I think there's a big whole issue around transport governance and the fact that transport governance is actually very closed, happens at a a very high level of decision-making behind closed doors quite often, and that would change within a, a socially sustainable transport system. And that you would actually think something about the fact that if you weren't getting your just desserts, if you didn't think that the system was fair, you would have some recourse to transport justice, actually through some sort of legal system. I would argue that there is nobody in the world that delivers this, these five key policy objectives, or even actually aims to deliver them um, as a stated objective. So you'd have these sort of policy issues. It would be quite a different way of thinking about transport systems because what you would be doing would be you would be connecting people to activities, not transport to transport, not buses going round empty, because that's not, they've got no people on them, but actually taking people and ensuring that they are able to get where they need to go um, and that non-car users have a, a safe environment because we, we recognise that the car is in, an important element, but that nevertheless you would try your best to encourage modal shift from cars so that you wouldn't have such a car-dominated system and encourage people to be cycling and walking more for their own benefit and the benefit of others. But nevertheless, you would still need to protect people from the worst effects of transport, and so you'd have an emphasis on things like reducing child um, pedestrian accidents... Um, and thinking particularly about those children that are most exposed to that ac- those accidents. So in the UK, that's um, low-income groups, ethnic minority groups particularly exposed. But I think generally low-income people are more likely to be walking, more likely to be exposed to traffic, often walking along unsafe um, infrastructure. Um, you'd be thinking about a, a, a transport system that rather than locking people out of it, rather than having people driving through your neighbourhood and having you in the car and not knowing anything about those systems that would actually encourage a form of social cohesion between travellers and different communities so that you would have emphasis on good transport connectivity, service integration, but you'd also link that with the idea that you need planning behind it and you have to have adequate supplies of affordable housing in the right places and other key areas of public service delivery such as health delivery, education delivery within communities in the right places so that you don't have places that do not have. You have to have sustainable uh, land use planning systems in place as well as your transport systems. Um, Lots of active, healthy travel um, and trying to prevent social isolation in older age through more interactive places. So it's a lot about placemaking as well as transport making. Um, This element of uh, participation 
You could almost guarantee that if what you did at the moment was went and asked people what they wanted in terms of transport services, they probably would say they wanted a car and they'd probably say they wanted better roads. So quite often if what you do is go and open up to the public, you can't guarantee that they're necessarily going to opt to the type of policies that you want for them. So there's an element of education, capacity building, um, and, and building in strength and resilience and adaptation and starting to have conversations about climate change and climate change adaption honestly with people um, so that they realise that there are limits to their transport growth. Um, and strengthening the, the, the functions of local governments and participation. Of course, well, it's very easy to stand here and generalise, but we're talking about different things in different places. I said context is important. One size doesn't fit all. We talked a little bit today about deve- in the, the context in developing cities versus developed cities. But at the moment, what it seems to be is that developing cities are attempting to mirror the Western model of transport. And um, I think that this is just not a socially sustainable way forward. Here you've still got minority car use, so the emphasis should be on providing transport for the majority, which means people without cars. So really not necessarily building in strength and road capacity and so on and so forth, but actually trying to limit further adoption of car use in those areas while still providing basic transport infrastructures um, for the population. Here, much more emphasis on control of cars, control of car ownership and bringing down people's um, mobility uh, budgets. But actually, there's some marked similarities between those two systems. There is almost across every country you will find that there is persistent inequalities, and they are the same. It's always the poor, it's always the old, it's always the young, it's quite often the, the poor women, the lone parents, that do not have equal travel behaviour. They're always at the bottom of the pile. There's always going to be an unmet need, an unmet desire for motorised transport. It's an, it seems to be an endless demand, even though you will hear people talking about peak car. It's peak car across whole societies, but not for every group, and there's still always going to be groups that have an unmet need for motorised transport. Transport needs to be seen as something that is a barrier to life chance opportunities in a, in a, in a system where we've got uh, friction of distance and, and non, uh, non-co-located opportunities. You are going to need transport to be able to get from one place to another. You cannot provide everything within every community, and so people will need to travel. But it needs to be seen as an enabler of other social policy goals. So things to do, it's part of employment policy, part of housing policy and education, and not something which is at the moment as it is, which is a very outside techie sort of activity and really only seen as an indicator of economic development and nothing more than that. So it needs to be embedded within those social policies. Um, and thinking about the way in which governments subsidise and spend on transport needs to be put within this framework of social policy evaluation so that we are actually thinking about are we allocating those subsidies which traditionally public policy subsidies have been seen to be going to places that the market cannot meet and yet actually an overwhelming amount of public subsidy for transport goes to things that arguably the market could meet, such as buying electric cars, for example. But the devil's in the detail, and so we always have this idea about the need to develop context-sensitive indicators, and I think that this is a Miller et al. have really come up with some very good ways to measure these things. 
It's not impossible to do. It isn't possible to impossible to represent these multidimensional com, uh, concepts, but we do need to think about more complicated ways than just GDP growth or um, carbon budgets or um, social inequality to be able to measure some of these things. And we need something that's consistent and transparent and can be measured over time, space and different in different contexts so that we are able to start looking at the, at the difference in performance between nations, between places, between cities. And I think we also need to start thinking about incorporating the perspectives of the different stakeholders and the different communities that are being delivered these transport systems rather than just uh, foisting them upon them. So I would say that in, in my conclusions, I would just say that I, the Western model of, of development, particularly with regards to transport, is not working. So really the last thing that we want to be doing is replicating it in places where it hasn't been adopted yet. And in order to do that, we have to think of solutions that are slow growth, that are already often embedded within those um, communities and societies, and that are people-focused rather than systems-focused and uh, mobility-focused. But in order to do, I think, in order to meet this socially sustainable transport system, there is going to be a major paradigm shift that is necessary and in fact it's not one that is very pleasant because it really does mean a reorganisation, a redistribution of transport wealth and those that have never want to give to those that haven't got and so with, as with most things with sustainable development we are going to find ourselves in a situation where um, in order to achieve this balance, this social sustainability we need to take back and that's where the trouble's going to come in when you start saying to people, no, you can't drive that much. No, your carbon budget is only that much. No, you're not allowed to take a plane to go and visit your sick relative in Australia. You have to, you know, sort of communicate with them over the internet. Um, and individuals have to accept that these constraints are necessary. And that's always going to be hard because it's always very, very easy to look at someone else and say, oh, but they could reduce their travel. They could do it like this. I already cycle every day, even though I fly 200,000 miles on holiday. You know? So I've already made my sacrifice. Um, yeah, we talked about this a little before. You know, so, so it's them that needs to do it. And whenever you, you do a transport survey and you ask people what they would like happen um, to, improve, to get them to modal shift, they, they always go for options like better public transport, um, better cycling provision, better this. And, and then if you actually went and observed their behaviour, they wouldn't use that new provision at all because that's for other people to get on that public transport so that I can carry on driving my car. You know, that is really... And if, what you, if you look at the options that actually they know will affect them directly, such as taxation or congestion charging, very, very, very unpopular, very, very difficult to take things off people and yet arguably what we do need to do is massage our mobility down from the top so that when we're trying to bring people up from the bottom we're not constantly escalating the need for mobility but but actually coming at some sort of bringing it down the the concept of uh, convergence is is quite common within climate change climate action plans carbon but somehow that convergence doesn't seem to communicate itself when you start talking about transport and so I think also accessibility for all is not um, really possible within the current choice 
arena. You know, you can choose how you do things. Freedom. We have our freedoms. We have our rights. We are citizens. We can, you know, we, we, we can decide. I think we've got some very unpalatable choices to be made here about restricting um, restrictions. And so I can imagine that this is not um, a particularly attractive debate to have. However, perhaps what you could do is bring Cinderella to the ball. You could start talking about justice, fairness, um, humanity, ethics, morality, social values, and actually start to be thinking about doing things in that more ethically honest, ethically moral way, um, hence your Cinderella, your sort of social justice, if you like, your just sustainability. I also hate that term as well because I think it just makes it sound like it's small and it isn't small at all. But so perhaps one could argue that social sustainability will come, will be the way forward if what you can think about is providing a just place for people to live and a just environment for them to be able to, uh, to enact their activities within. Um, and maybe that's the way to sort of argue that, that people perhaps sacrifice a bit. That was perhaps a little, um, a little uh, naive of me to suggest that, but nevertheless, it's a, it's a good place to finish. Thank you very much.